When you feel a little Mexican and want to have a good time, come to Chi-Chi's Mexican Restaurant for Chihitas. I'm talking quarter pound of beef on the hot, hot side. And the hot stays hot. The new big DLT. Butterfinger BBs. From Nestle. See you later, homeboy. We'd like to introduce you to PB Max. Now that don't mean pretty boy Max. Hello again, foodies. Welcome to the latest episode of Forgotten Foods, presented by the Space Monkey X Audio Workshop. This is your host, Rob Lamley. On Forgotten Foods, I'll be doing a deep dive into the history behind your favorite sentimental snacks, canceled candies, bygone soft drinks, and discontinued fast food items. For this first miniseries, we're looking at the history and the mystery behind the snack that was set to sweep the nation in the mid-1980s, only to disappear before it ever really got off the ground. That's right, we're talking about the stuff. Our journey to learn the story behind the stuff has been a wild one. From a shady government approval process to a right-wing militia assault on the plant where the stuff was made, I never expected the story to go where it has. But you ain't seen nothing yet. I have to go on record saying that I was really hesitant to even include this episode in our examination of the stuff. So a disclaimer. Very little of the story you are about to hear can be verified. Is it a wild story? Absolutely. Is it believable? Well, I'll leave that up to you, but I have my own thoughts that I'll share at the end. I started researching this stuff about six months ago, requesting documents from the federal government, trying to contact people from the former Fletcher Enterprises, and digging into the lives of the FDA employees has clearly raised some red flags. Some of the people that I tried to contact for interviews said that they'd been warned about me, actually. One guy even contacted me and preemptively told me he had no comment. But I was still surprised when I received an email from Scott, which is not his real name. In fact, I don't know his real name because he never gave it to me. The email address he used was through an anonymous mail service, and whenever I try to contact him now, my email bounces back as undeliverable. To interview him, I called a Google phone number, he disguised his voice on his end, and now the phone number has been disconnected. Needless to say, much like Nicole Kendall, Scott does not want to be found, which does make me very suspicious that this is all just some elaborate prank. And yet, there's just enough verifiable tidbits in Scott's story that I couldn't just outright ignore it. There are also some really out-there allegations that make me think he might suffer from some form of undiagnosed mental illness. But enough qualifying. Let's let Scott tell his story. My family moved to Long Island when I was about 10 years old. The company my dad worked for opened a new office on the island, so he got transferred there. I gotta say, I was a pretty happy kid until the summer of 1985 when the stuff came into my life. My mom brought home the stuff from the supermarket earlier that day. Apparently we were like a test market or something for the Northeast region. I remember it was really hot that night, pretty typical for Long Island in July, so I had my window open trying to let in some fresh air. Of course, that also meant I let the mosquitoes in too. I was getting eaten alive, so I woke up to close the window, but then I couldn't go back to sleep. I wandered downstairs to the kitchen and decided to get myself a snack. When I opened the fridge, the carton was on its side, the lid was off, and the stuff was crawling back into the container. It was kind of like a cockroach running from the light. My dad heard me get up and I thought there was a burglar, so he came down and he found me there just staring at the fridge. He didn't see it move, he said I must have been dreaming, but I know what I saw. Now I know what you're thinking. This guy is clearly pulling my leg. Believe me, I thought the same thing at first too. And quite frankly, even after hearing Scott's full story, I'm still not entirely sure it's all true. But a lot of his story lines up pretty well with the timeline of events from my research. So if it is a hoax, Scott has definitely done his homework. After that, I refused to eat the stuff. Unfortunately, I couldn't convince my family to do the same. 
by the end of the week, that's all they were eating for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They just couldn't get enough. The fridge was packed with it. Mom swore she'd lost five pounds, and Dad tried to convince me that, yeah, it was alive, but it was kind of like the cultures that are in yogurt, you know. But I knew better. I knew better. With nothing else to eat in the house, I gathered what little money I'd saved up from my allowance and lawn mowing jobs, and I went to the supermarket to buy something, anything. I was starving. While I was there, I saw a little kid in a shopping cart just eating the stuff right out of the package, and, well, to be honest, I, I kind of lost it. I destroyed every container I could find. I mean, I picked it right up from the shelf and just threw it to the ground as hard as I could, and it splattered all over the place. An employee started chasing after me, so I ran, and I lost her when she slipped on some of the stuff on the floor. I found a mop in one of the aisles, and I used it to smash the glass of the freezer cases. I was just trying to get rid of as much of it as I could. After I knocked down a floor display of the stuff, two guys who worked there grabbed me, and they finally got me under control. When the police came, I tried to tell them why I'd done it, but they weren't listening. The store manager said he had to speak to corporate before we could press any charges, so... They let me go home with my parents for the time being. Now here we have our first verifiable piece of information from Scott's story. The East Hampton Star, a Long Island newspaper that's been in business since 1885, ran a story on July 12, 1985 with the headline, Boy Arrested in Supermarket Rampage. The boy in the article was only 12 years old, so his identity was not disclosed, but the eyewitness accounts line up with everything Scott just said. However, there is one crucial aspect of the story that's missing. The stuff. The article in the East Hampton Star simply states that a 12-year-old boy tore up a supermarket. There is no mention of the stuff being the reason or target of his destruction. Although I can verify a kid tore up a grocery store in Long Island, the fact that Scott claims his mother bought the stuff in Long Island doesn't really add up. If that were true, according to the former FDA employee I interviewed back in Episode 3, there should be some stuff containers that list the ingredients. As you might recall, The FDA does not require ingredients listed on packaging until that product is sold across state lines. Good Stuff Inc. was based out of Midland, Georgia. Therefore, if Scott's mother bought the stuff in Long Island, New York, at least the containers sold in New York should have had the ingredients listed. However, I've never been able to find a single image of stuff packaging with the ingredients. So is Scott the 12-year-old in the article, or did he simply read the same news story I did and twist the real events to fit his fictional stuff narrative? Let's get back to Scott's story. According to Scott, it was after his supermarket rampage that things really got bad at home. That was the night I ran away from home. My parents and brother tried to force me to eat the stuff. I tried to play along, but soon enough they figured out I was lying about eating it. I ran and they came after me. It was really scary. It was very frightening. Out of nowhere, this car pulled up to me and the guy inside told me to get inside. I... In hindsight, I can't believe how stupid I was to get into a car with a total stranger, but I panicked, and, well, I'm glad I did, because Mo saved my life. Mo is David Mo Rutherford, a former FBI agent dismissed from the Bureau in 1977. Mo was accused of taking bribes from the Colombo crime family, one of the famous five families of New York's mafia scene, the very family he was supposed to be investigating. Moe later found work as a licensed private investigator, but according to Scott, Moe was also involved in corporate espionage. Scott said Moe was hired by a rival dessert company to try to steal the stuff's recipe so that they could copy it. Scott said that never happened, though, because he claims there was no recipe. Well, I guess that's one thing you can say about this stuff. It was all natural. I don't know what it was, but there was no artificial anything in it. The stuff was simply scooped up from a lake that seeped out of the ground. 
I can understand a tired kid dreaming that he saw the stuff move in his refrigerator at 4am, but the idea of the stuff being some kind of natural product that is collected from the ground? That seems a little far-fetched. With such an odd primary ingredient, the FDA would have surely required testing and perhaps even an on-site inspection to ensure whatever the stuff was that it was being harvested in a manner that would be safe for consumption. Our friendly, anonymous former FDA employee confirms this for me. Oh, absolutely. We would have done an on-site visit. There are certain natural products, almonds, peanuts, cranberries, etc., whose harvesting methods are well-known and we'd accept them as safe. But if you tried to incorporate a crop or other natural ingredient that was not commonly used, we would have made sure it was being collected and processed in a way that met our standards for safety. But Scott's wild tale doesn't stop with a lake of stuff. That night, Moe, Nicole, and I flew to Midland on a private jet, which was pretty cool for being a kid. I fell asleep on the plane, and when I woke up, Moe and Nicole were gone, and the stuff was coming after me. You heard that right. Scott claims Nicole Kendall was on the plane with Moe Rutherford. As to the stuff coming after me, Scott said that the stuff was streaming out of one of the compartments on the private plane owned by Fletcher Enterprises, and it was moving towards him almost as if it had a mind of its own. He was able to escape out of the luggage hatch at the back of the plane and ran off into the Georgia wilderness. After wandering for some time, he came upon a mining operation run by Fletcher Enterprises. Or so it seemed. The mine was closed, but that was just a cover anyway. The processing plant was still operational, and they were cranking out the stuff as quickly as they could collect it from the lake. As I mentioned in Episode 4, Fletcher Enterprises did have a clay mine near Midland, so this does check out. Scott claims he, along with Rutherford and Kendall, were able to commandeer a truck full of the stuff from the Midland plant. Rutherford had the idea to drive to Colonel Spears' compound and convince Spears to go back and raid the plant. Scott claims he was witness to the carnage that day. <laughs> the police got it almost all wrong. The man at the front gate, that, that they got right. But the rest of them, the ones the police said died because of some kind of chemical leak, that's bull****. Rather than be caught and have their plan exposed, they committed suicide. I was there, man. I saw the bodies. Unfortunately, I can't verify Scott's claim at all. According to a very helpful woman named Diane at the Muskogee County Courthouse, the court documents and supporting evidence for the Carl Woods trial, the lone militia member convicted for murdering the front gate guard, cannot be found in the court's computer filing system. The court documents and supporting evidence for the militia members convicted of manslaughter for the deaths of the Good Stuff employees are also not in the electronic archives. Diane told me if the files were there, they should have been scanned back in 2012 when the courthouse went digital. Sadly, all paper files were destroyed after being scanned, so if it's not in the computer filing system, it simply no longer exists. Now, the conspiracy theorist in me thinks that sounds a little suspicious. But at the same time, those documents are from over 35 years ago, and I doubt anyone has gone looking for them for decades. It's entirely possible they were misplaced and never scanned, and no one noticed until some nosy podcaster came asking for them. Heck, I can't find my car keys from one moment to the next, so maybe it's not all that surprising that some paperwork got lost in the shuffle of 35 years. Therefore, the best I can do is use what was reported in the newspapers. The Ledger Inquirer, based out of nearby Columbus, Georgia, seems to have been the only paper to really concern itself with the story. I found three articles from July 1985, just after the raid on the Good Stuff plant, another from August when Spears and his men were arrested, and then another from June 1986 detailing the conviction of the militia members for manslaughter. All of them say the Good Stuff employees died by accidental asphyxiation as a result of a chemical tank rupturing inside the plant. 
Scott's story does help confirm the ear witness account of Larry Moore, who told us in the last episode that Nicole Kendall was on the air that day with Colonel Spears. In fact, Scott claims that he was there when Colonel Spears, Nicole Kendall, and apparently Mo Rutherford all made speeches on the radio after the raid on the Good Stuff plant. Oh, it was all three of them on the air that day. They tried to get me to talk, but I was just a shy kid. I, I didn't know what to say. I asked Scott if Nicole Kendall was coerced or forced to give a statement against her employer, Fletcher Marketing. What? No, God no. Nicole and I were almost killed by this stuff. She faced off with it more than once. The day of the plant, we barely escaped it. Even at the radio station, she had a run-in with Chocolate Chip Charlie. He'd been taken over by this stuff, and he tried to kill her. The only way she made it out alive was when Mo electrocuted the stuff, as it came pouring out of Charlie's mouth. Believe me, she meant every word she said in that broadcast. As was briefly mentioned back in episode 2 by former Fletcher and marketing employee Carol Schneider, the Chocolate Chip Charlie Cookie Company was a string of cookie shops up and down the West Coast. Fletcher Enterprises bought the company and had plans to convert the shops into stuff shacks as they took the stuff nationwide. According to a Wall Street Journal article from March 26, 1985, the founder of the Chocolate Chip Charlie Cookie Company, Charlie W. Hobbs, was removed from the board of the company that he started in a hostile takeover by Fletcher Enterprises. Fletcher was able to convince Hobbs' relatives, who were major stakeholders in the company, to sell their shares in order for Fletcher to get a controlling interest. Seeing that his situation was hopeless, Hobbs took the buyout offer from Fletcher and presumably retired in anger. He sold his Beverly Hills mansion at a loss and pretty much disappeared from the public eye. Property searches don't tell us where he moved, but that's not unusual because the very wealthy usually purchase properties through a corporate shell that conceals their identity. There is no record of Charlie Hobbs' body being found at the WRWB WGHQ radio station. If Chocolate Chip Charlie is still alive, he'd be 85 years old and probably living off the dividends on a private island far away from the IRS. But assuming Scott's story is true, what does he mean the stuff was pouring out of Charlie's mouth? The stuff was a parasite. You ate it, it fed off of you, and it controlled your mind. The more you ate, the more you wanted it. Eventually, it took over your, your entire body from the inside. It could, like, come out when it sensed a threat and attack whoever was that threat. I'm telling you, it had a mind of its own. But to what end? It's hard to believe a frozen dessert would have machinations for world domination. I, I don't know what it wanted. I don't know that any parasite has a plan other than to replicate and spread to new hosts. I just know that it took my whole family. I just know that it was dangerous and it had to be stopped. Fletcher, Mo and I did what had to be done. In case you couldn't hear that clearly, Scott just said, Fletcher, Mo and I did what had to be done. I'm not sure what Scott is insinuating here. He could be referring to Fletcher Enterprises. But let's also not forget that James Fletcher was found dead in his New York City office just a few months after Scott's wild story takes place. I tried to get him to tell me what he meant, but he abruptly ended the interview without another word. I mean, he literally hung up on me. And like I said before, any further attempts to contact Scott, whoever he is, have failed. I have to tell you folks, I have serious doubts about Scott's story. Yes, some of his account can be verified but it's just enough fact to make the fiction seem even more outlandish. The idea of a dessert being alive, taking over the bodies of the people who eat it, and then to come pouring out of a person's mouth to infect someone else? Come on. If that were true, the stuff would still be out there, spreading like a disease. And I don't know about you, but I know I'm not the host of a brain-eating parasitic dessert hell-bent on taking over the world. As they say, the simplest answer 
is usually the correct answer. My sort of unifying theory about this stuff is this. Fletcher Enterprises cut a few corners, or perhaps through Mo Rutherford's corporate espionage, was able to get their hands on a dessert recipe from a rival company that they wanted to develop as the stuff. In order to receive FDA approval, the company possibly paid off some government employees and claimed the major ingredient of the stuff, Compound 34, was a trade secret. I can't speak for the strange deaths surrounding the stuff, other than to say that thousands of people die every day in America, so coincidence and just plain bad luck can't be ruled out. The people of state of Virginia obviously loved the stuff when they tested it. Good Stuff Inc. was looking to ramp up production before the stuff's nationwide rollout. The people of Stater needed jobs, Good Stuff Inc. needed employees. It sounds like a match made in heaven. I have a feeling the notion that, quote, everyone in Stater moved to Midland is a bit of an exaggeration and a bit of a generalization. Many able-bodied people probably did accept jobs from Good Stuff Inc. and picked up and moved. Once enough people left, any remaining residents would have found their town's businesses closing down, so there would be little left to keep them in Stater. I'm sure the remaining population got absorbed by other cities like Chattanooga, Knoxville, and Atlanta, and we just don't hear about them because they didn't die at the hands of a right-wing nutjob. Speaking of the Atlanta thing, it makes a lot of sense that the backlash against the stuff, instigated by Colonel Spears and his right-wing wacko militia, was enough to force Good Stuff Inc. and Fletcher Enterprises to delay the launch of the stuff nationwide. It's impossible to know what Spears had against the stuff, but the colonel had made quite a few enemies over the years with his blowhard rhetoric and schoolyard bully ways. Perhaps he had a personal feud with someone behind the stuff and wanted to sabotage it when he heard it was going to be released across the country. Therefore, he essentially weaponized his followers for his own personal gain. As for Nicole Kendall, if she did make a broadcast on Spears' radio station, even if it was under duress, her words might have been damaging enough to Fletcher Marketing that they had no choice but to let her go. Or, assuming she was present during the raid on the Midland plant, she might have simply been traumatized by the death and destruction she witnessed that day and maybe she's never really quite recovered. But ultimately, as I've mentioned more than once during this series, the real reason the stuff was never released is that James Fletcher died just a few months later, and the pieces of Fletcher Enterprises were sold off to the highest bidder. In the end, it all comes down to fate and capitalism. And with that, I think we've come to the end of our first series of Forgotten Foods. I'd like to thank all of my guests for agreeing to appear on the show. I'd also like to thank the helpful employees of various government agencies who compiled documentation for me. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast series, The Taste from Cohen Confections. Fresh from your grocer's dairy department, The Taste is a brand new snack sensation. It combines the great flavor of ice cream with the health benefits of Greek yogurt including advanced probiotics, more calcium, more protein, and fewer carbs than the leading brand. Pick some up at your local supermarket today, and you'll agree that one taste is all it takes. Thanks for checking out Forgotten Foods, presented by the Space Monkey X Audio Workshop. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, if you have any comments or questions about our current series, reach out to us on Twitter at SpaceMonkeyX. Head over to our website, spacemonkeyx.net, for this episode's show notes, as well as links to our other podcasts. This has been your host, Rob Lamley. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you all next time.